Good morning. Man, it is so great to be at Northside. This is such a great congregation. We love every chance we have to be here. And I've loved this service already. What a great song service. And what great thoughts about the communion and about the offering. Uh, I appreciated Toby's introduction. I feel bad for all the guests that I've stolen lunch from you. Um, Come to the OC lunch, okay? We'll tell you about OC. We want to do that as well. Man, it's good to see the Mukes. We miss you guys. We're glad you're at a good place. All right. Uh, man, and we were, in, we were in Bible class with the youth class this morning. What an outstanding group you all have. Jeff's doing a great job in there. I, I love, man, how packed it was. They put the donuts away really, really well this morning as well. Um, Jeff said something during the class, and it, and it kind of uh, piqued some interest in me. He talked about Northside having a lot of folks that are OC-connected or OC-related. So I want to ask, if you have attended Oklahoma Christian or you have a family member who has attended Oklahoma Christian, would you raise your hand so we can see, oh, my. Okay, that's outstanding. For the rest of you all, I've got a scholarship for you this morning, Okay. <laughs> We can make it happen. Well, thank you for, uh, for being a part of Oklahoma Christian. Um, okay, I'm not going to tell the story that I have told at least once here before about passing out when I was preaching as a 16-year-old. I learned in class this morning, apparently I tell that story all the time, so I'm not going to tell that story. But I want you to know that I feel more comfortable here than any other congregation because of that story. I had breakfast with Phil Brookman, the preacher at the Memorial Road Church of Christ where Darla and I attend earlier this week, and I said I was coming up here, and he said, hey, well, I want to tell you a story. I was with a group of, of, of ministers and youth ministers. We had had a retreat. It had been a really good session. I was about to sit down, but somebody was putting the chairs away already, and they pulled the chair that I was about to sit in and put it on the stack, and I didn't know that, and I sat down hard, and I hit my head hard. And I'm laying there stunned, and there are all these ministers standing around, and they had no idea what to do. And he said, but Toby, he came and he helped me up, he put me in his car, he took me to the ER where I got stitches and staples in the back of my head, and Toby took care of me. And then he said, and every time I hear from Toby, he doesn't call me by my first name, Phil, he sends me a text that says, hey, Stitch. How you doing? So I, I actually feel better and more comfortable now than maybe, uh, than maybe I have in a, in a long time. Okay, Darla and I are a part of a small Bible study group. It's a Q group there at Oklahoma Christian. And earlier this summer, uh, one of the members in this group said, hey, let's go to this church because we want to hear this preacher speak. And everybody was kind of enthused about that. And then somebody else said, but when we go, let's make sure that we actually know that he is going to be preaching. We don't want to show up and there's some random dude that's bringing the message. That's when Darla leaned over to me and said, hey, you know, when you go to Northside, you're that random dude that, <laughs> that nobody came to hear. Uh, Okay, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been in a place or with a group of people or at a certain time where you thought, this is perfect? This is my people, this is my place, this is my time. 
when you have that feeling, it's a wonderful feeling. Now, let me ask you the counter question to that, which probably, if you're like me, you actually have felt more often. Have you ever been in a place or at a time or with a group of people and you thought, ah, this just, this is uncomfortable. This is not my place or my people or my time. Brothers and sisters, I I think as followers of God in the world that we live in, it is not unusual to find ourselves in that place or that time or with that group of people where it just doesn't feel right. But I think God calls us to be comfortable even in moments of discomfort. Now, we could be uncomfortable for lots of reasons. Maybe somebody shares a harsh word. Maybe we just feel totally out of place. Or maybe we are totally rejected. So what I want to do is I want to share three reasons, those three reasons why we might feel uncomfortable, stories from the Bible, and then lessons from God. So here's the first one. Sometimes somebody says something harsh or critical. Earlier this summer, I went to the doctor. I'm hearing ringing in my ears, um, and so I thought, man, I need, to, I need to go and take care of this. I actually have heard it for a year and a half or two years, and Darla told me, okay, you need to go see a doctor about this. So I walk in to the waiting room, and I am the only person save two others. There's a, a dad probably in his early 30s and a young and very energetic young man probably three years of age. This kid is going everywhere. He is zooming around, and then he catches a glimpse of me, and he stops, and he freezes, and he pauses for a couple seconds, and he has a big smile on his face, and he says, Papa! And the dad sees me kind of this, like, dejected look, and the dad says, oh, man, I'm, I'm really sorry. He, uh, every time he sees a really old guy, he just says, Papa. <laughs> And it's like, ah, and, and he could tell that he had said the wrong thing. And he said, oh, man, I'm sorry, I didn't mean, make, make, mean for it to sound like that. R- really what I meant to say is every time he sees somebody who's really older than I am, he says, Papa. So in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapters 16, 17, 18, and 19, some of the most incredible victories given by God to an individual, and then there is a harsh word that is shared, and he crumbles. I want to tell you that story. So at the very end of 1 Kings chapter 16, a new king comes to power. His name is Ahab. Let me tell you, the Bible talks about Ahab and says he is more evil than all those who had come before. And he marries an evil queen, Jezebel. In fact, those who worship Baal and Asherah, they come to power at this time. 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah is on the scene and he goes to the king and says, it's not going to rain and it's not even going to have dew on the ground until I pray differently and the drought hits. By the way, we read in James that Elijah was just a normal man like you and me, and he prays a powerful prayer. But he gives that message to King Ahab, and God tells him, okay, you need to get out of here. 
go east, go to the Kirith Ravine and hide there. There's a brook, you can drink the water, and I will feed you. And God feeds him twice a day, ravens bring him bread and meat. That's pretty amazing. And by the way, the land has become dry. In fact, his prayer is so effective that the brook that he is drinking from even dries up. And that's when God tells him, go to Zarephath and find a widow there. And so Elijah moves on from the ravine, and he goes to this village of Zarephath, and he finds a widow, and she is collecting sticks. And Elijah says to her, would you give me a drink of water? And then he says, how about a piece of bread as well? And the widow tells Elijah, I'm collecting sticks because all I have is a small jar of oil and a handful of flour to make the last meal for my son and I. We're going to eat this, and then we're going to die. And Elijah says to her, if you will do as I have asked, God will make sure that that flour and that oil does not run out until rain comes back to the land. And so the widow prepares that meal for Elijah. And sure enough, that little bit of oil, that little bit of flour, it doesn't run out. Well, while Elijah is with this widow and her son sometime later, in fact, this took three years during this phase of his life, her son got sick. And he got sicker, and he got sicker, and he got sicker, and then he died. And the widow can't believe this. And she goes to Elijah and says, did you bring this upon me? Are you reminding me of my sin? Have you ruined my life? And Elijah takes the body of her son up onto an upper room, and he stretches himself out and prays three times that God would bring this young man back to life. And God does. And Elijah takes the son, back to the widow. And she says, I know you're a man of God. And I know that every word of the Lord that comes from your mouth, I know it is true. Unbelievable victories already in Elijah's life. He has stopped the rain. He has stopped the dew. Um, He has been able to feed a widow and her son and himself by the power of God in just a small amount of flour and oil for three years And he's even brought the son back to life. 1 Kings chapter 18. You see, God tells Elijah, it's time for you to go back to Ahab. So Elijah makes his trek back to find King Ahab. Now, King Ahab, in the meantime, his right-hand man is a fellow named Obadiah. And he has actually told Obadiah, we need to search the land for green grass so we can try to feed some of our cattle. Otherwise, everything is going to die. Obadiah is a follower of God. Obadiah has, unbeknownst to the king or to the queen, has taken 100 priests of God and hidden them in two caves and provided them food and water. Obadiah sees Elijah coming, and he knows who he is, and he is so grateful to see him. And Elijah tells Obadiah, I want to see King Ahab. And Obadiah says, you're going to kill me. You see, 
I'll go tell King Ahab that you're here to see him, but the Spirit of God is going to take you to another place. And King Ahab, he has actually threatened all the countries around here looking for you. And so you're going to disappear, and I'm going to be killed. And Elijah says, no, I'm here to see King Ahab. So Obadiah goes, and Elijah and King Ahab have an encounter. And King Ahab says, oh, is that you, you troublemaker? And Elijah says back to him, it's not me causing trouble, it's your family that's causing trouble. So you have a real kind of a good shout down right here between the king and and the prophet. Elijah says to the king, he says, gather all of the people here and gather all of the prophets of Baal and Asheroth. And let's have kind of a final showdown. And King Ahab does that. And they meet at Mount Carmel. Or, if you're from California, Mount Carmel. And there are over 400 priests in, in attendance. In fact, 400 from Baal, 450 from Ashereth. And as the people from the country gather together, Elijah says to them, Okay, you guys have been wishy-washy enough. You've thought that maybe it was God, but then you thought maybe it was Baal. Let's settle this once and for all. And the people agreed. And he said, you priests of Baal, you can go first. Take this bull and sacrifice it, but don't light it on fire. Call down fire from your God, and I will call down fire from my God, and the real God will provide the fire. Elijah says, now there's 400 of you all, so you go first. So they begin early that morning. They've prepared the bull, and they begin dancing around that bull, calling on their god, Baal, to burn up their sacrifice. And they go until noon. And about noon, Elijah begins to taunt them. And he says, hey, you guys maybe need to be louder because maybe your god is busy. Maybe your god is off traveling. Maybe your god is not paying attention. Maybe your god is asleep. And so they get louder and louder and more frenetic. They begin cutting themselves with spears, and the blood is flowing. And the day ends, and they have still not gotten their god Baal to respond. And Elijah steps up, and you know the story. He prepares the bull for his sacrifice. He repairs the altar of God. He puts 12 stones around it for each of the tribes. There are four jars of water. He has it filled up three times, and those are poured onto his sacrifice. He had dug a trench around his sacrifice, and it is just flowing with water. And Elijah calls on God, and God immediately sends fire and burns everything up. The people then claim and understand that God is God. Those priests of Baal, well, they're taken down into the valley and they come to uh, an inglorious end. Elijah goes back to King Ahab. And remember, it still has not rained for over three years. And he says to King Ahab, you better eat and you better drink because I hear the sound of heavy rain coming. He then goes back up on the mountaintop with his servant And he kneels down and he begins to pray with his head between his knees. And he tells his servant, okay, go look toward the sea. Do you see anything? And the servant saw nothing. He does that seven times. And then the servant says, I see a small cloud on the horizon. It's about the size of a man's fist. 
And Elijah immediately sent word to to Ahab the king, you need to get in your chariot and you need to take off with your horses as fast as you can to Jezreel. And the king does that. But Elijah is so caught up in the spirit of God that even after all of this work he has put in, he begins to run and he actually outruns the king and the chariot to Jezreel. Victory after victory after victory Elijah has had. And the next chapter, verse chapter 19 begins. Ahab tells his wife Jezebel what has just happened. And she sends a harsh word to Elijah. She says, may it be ever so bad on me if at this time tomorrow you are not dead. Elijah's scared to death. He and his servant immediately leave and they race off toward a town called Beersheba. And at Beersheba, he says to his servant, you're released from duty, which means Elijah has just resigned from being a prophet of God. He goes another day out into the desert, and he's exhausted, and he lays down to sleep. And then he's awakened by an angel who tells him, here's warm bread and water, you're going to need this. And so Elijah eats, and then he falls back asleep. The angel wakes him up again and says, you're going to have to eat and drink again because you've got a long journey ahead of you. He eats and drinks, and then he sets out 40 days to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb. Once he gets there, God comes to him in a voice and says, Elijah, what are you doing? And here's what Elijah says. Elijah says, I am zealous for you, but your people have broken your commandments. They've destroyed your altars. They've killed your priests, and I'm the only one left. And God says to him, go to the mountain and wait for me. Elijah goes to the mountain, and God comes. The first thing that happens is a really loud wind, but God's not in the wind. Second thing occurs, an earthquake, but God is not in the earthquake. A third thing occurs is there's great fire that is brought, but God is not in the fire. And then there is a gentle whisper, and Elijah steps out, and the voice of God says to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah says the same thing. He says, I'm zealous for you, but I'm all alone. Your people have destroyed your commandments. They've destroyed your altar. They've killed your priests. And God tells him, Elijah, go back and do your work. And by the way, I have 7,000 that are for me. Sometimes we're going to hear a discouraging word. Maybe it's a threat. Maybe it's a critical word. And it's going to kind of shake us to our foundations. We need to do what ended up happening for Elijah. We need to listen for the voice of God. We need to realize that God calls us to do things, but we also need to know that we're not called to do those by ourselves. We have people that love God and will support us in our efforts for God. Okay, here's the second reason why we might feel uncomfortable. Um, Sometimes maybe we feel uncomfortable just because we know we are totally out of place. This just doesn't feel right. I should not be here right now in this setting, I don't think. 
Darla and I had not been married very long. We got married, we went to law school at Pepperdine, then we moved to Dallas, and we found our place at the Preston Road Church of Christ, a really great group of young married couples. It was the first fall that we were there. We got together regularly. We had good fellowship and great meals. Well, there was a gathering that was coming up, and it was a costume party. Nothing strikes fear into my heart more than you're invited to a costume party. But we were told... Don't worry, everybody will be in costume. So some friends of ours from Tahlequah, they happened to hear that we were going to this costume party, and they had his and hers clown costumes. We're talking bushy, multicolored, bright hair. I think we're rem- I remember us wearing makeup, actually, from this. Darla does not remember that, but I'm telling the story. So we wore clown makeup. We had these silky, kind of billowy-type clown outfits, the big shoes. Man, the afternoon of the party, I put mine on, and I have never felt more uncomfortable in my life. So our car, yeah, so somebody's shaking his head, yeah, I agree with you right there. Um, So we have a detached garage, and I have to walk at least 20 feet from my back door to the garage to get in the car. I was scared walking that 20 feet, okay? What if somebody sees me in my private backyard here? We get in the car, we're driving to the party, and I like to make eye contact, I like to drive friendly, you know, and I am looking straight ahead because I don't want anybody to look at me or uh, acknowledge how I am dressed. We get to the party, we pull up in front of the house, we turn off the car, we get out of the car, we walk up to the front door, we ring the doorbell, the door opens, we walk in, We are the only people in costume at this party. Yeah, right, okay? So, actually, a couple months later, one of the the young couples threw a colander party. You know, that's where you... A colander, as I understand it, is what you put the spaghetti in and it drains through. And this was a colander party. Wear a colander on your head. Well, we didn't fall for that, I'll tell you that. We We didn't wear that. Sometimes, though... I think God calls us to be in situations that feel strange and uncomfortable for us. I mean, think about the situations that Jesus engaged in that made some of his followers feel very uncomfortable. Do you remember when he took his disciples, John chapter 4, into Samaria? That didn't feel good to them. They go to the village to get food, and he goes to Jacob's well and waits there, and a woman comes in the middle of the day, and he talks with her. And when his apostles return, they see him talking to a Samaritan woman, and it is very uncomfortable for them. Or what about early in Luke, Luke chapter 5, when Jesus calls the tax collector, Levi, or Matthew, to be one of his followers. You know that made his people uncomfortable, especially the zealot that was one of his apostles. But then he goes to a party with his apostles and disciples, his followers, that night at Matthew's house. And the Pharisees, they cannot believe that he is having dinner with a tax collector and sinners. Or maybe it's, when he tells a story. Actually, before that, he goes to find Zacchaeus up in a tree, and he says to Zacchaeus, come down. I want to have 
dinner at your home, Zacchaeus, a tax collector, and everybody muttered about Jesus and his followers going to that party. But in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells a story that probably has different impact on us today than it did in the first century. You see, Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience, and he tells this story, and I am told by PR uh, professionals that every story has three characters. There is a victim, there is a good guy, and there is a bad guy. There's a victim character, there's a character that's the hero, and there is the character that's, that's the, the bad person in this. Jesus tells this story, and the story is there was a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this is a pretty dangerous road, and so maybe the audience knows where he's going. And he says, this man is beset by robbers, and they beat him half to death, they strip him, they take everything from him, and they leave him in a ditch half dead. There's the victim, and the robbers were the bad guys. So you're looking for the good guy. And Jesus says, a priest walks along the road, and the crowd thinks to themselves, ah, okay, here's the good guy, one of our one of our men who officially and professionally follows God. And Jesus says, the priest sees the man, and he averts his eyes, and he keeps walking. We have another bad guy in the story. And then Jesus says, there's a second person who comes along, and this is a, uh, this is a Levite. And so now the audience thinks, oh, okay, here, here, this is a really good lesson for us. This tells us that we can be the good guys too. Here is a... Here is one from the, the, the family of God, where the priests came from. He's not a priest. He's more like us. This is really good. And Jesus tells a story, and the Levite sees the man who was beaten and keeps walking. And so the crowd has got to be confused and maybe uncomfortable, but their uncomfort level skies when Jesus says, and the third person that walks by is a Samaritan. The Jews and the Samaritans, to say they didn't get along is an understatement. And in no Jewish story could a Samaritan be a hero, a good guy. And Jesus turns everything up on its head and says, here's the good guy. The Samaritan stops, he bandages and cleans the wounds of this man who was beaten, he puts him on his donkey, takes him to a place, spends the night with him, caring for him, And the next day tells the innkeeper, here is money, take care of this gentleman, and when I get back, I will pay you whatever I owe you. Sometimes Jesus calls us into what we believe are uncomfortable situations because he has a truth to teach us. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples, and for all of us as well. It is a long, long prayer. And in in chapter 17, he goes into a part where he says, God, do not take them out of this world. Do not take my followers out of this world, but protect them from the evil one. For like me, they are not of this world. Sometimes, We're really uncomfortable because we don't think that this is our people or our place. But sometimes I think the lesson for us is that Jesus calls us into places that might feel uncomfortable. 
Here's my third reason why sometimes we have a particular level of discomfort in our world. Sometimes we're just rejected. I mean, flat out rejected. Okay, so, I don't know, seven years ago, six, seven years ago, I am flying with two colleagues from Dallas-Fort Worth to Los Angeles. We walk on the plane. It's a big plane. I don't, I don't pay good attention. I don't know who's on the plane. I walk through first class, and I head back to the cheapest seats possible in the airplane. Get back there with my two colleagues, and one of them says, Hey, did you see who was in first class? I said, Well, no. And he said, Gina Davis was in first class. Okay, young people, you have no idea who Gina Davis is. Um, at one time, she was a star, okay, um, a, a Hollywood star. And so I said, I'm going to go meet Gina Davis. Well, you know, you're on a plane, you're not supposed to go back to first class, so I knew that was kind of an idle, uh, empty boast right there. And so the plane takes off, we land in Los Angeles, and I say, I'm going to go meet Gina Davis before she gets off the plane. Well, you know, first class always uh, deplanes before we do, and so she's not around. I don't have a chance to, to meet Gina Davis. We take our luggage, we go outside, and we're waiting for the shuttle of the rental car, the the shuttle bus, to come and get us. One of my buddies turns around and says, you're not going to believe this, but Gina Davis is sitting on a bench all by herself over there. And so I kind of thought, okay, it's it's time to really step up and be a man here. So I... I say to one of the guys, hey, bring your, bring your iPhone over. I want you to take a picture with me and Gina Davis. So I walk back to her, and I say, um, and she remains seated. And I say, Gina, my name is John. And then I think, what am I, I going to say now? I mean, this is so creepy, right? Okay, so, and so I said, Gina, my name is John. My mom is a really big fan of yours. <laughs> I've already apologized to my mom. My mom has no idea who Gina Davis is, okay? So I say, my mom is a really big fan of yours. Can I take a picture with you to send it back to to my mom? And Gina looks up at me and she says, John, I'm not going to take a picture with you. I don't want anybody else to know that I'm sitting over here. So no, John, I will not take a picture with you. Total, total rejection. We slink back, we get onto the shuttle bus. That night, I'm at a reception at Pepperdine for Oklahoma Christian alums, and I'm getting to speak. And I tell everybody, I just want you guys to know, I'm on a first-name basis with Gina Davis. <laughs> Which was true, but I, and I told them the rest of the story. So, sometimes we're uncomfortable because we're rejected. Acts chapter 14, and by the way, it can turn in a moment. Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas go to Lystra. They come into this town, and there is a man who has been crippled from birth. And Paul heals him. And the crowd sees that, and they are amazed, and they begin to shout, the gods have come down in human form. And they are calling Barnabas Zeus, and they are calling... Uh, Paul Hermes, because he is the one who is the spokesman of the two. 
And there is actually the priest who runs the temple to Apollo there, and, and he, or to Zeus, and he is bringing a bull out with wreaths because he wants to make a sacrifice right here to Paul and Barnabas. And when Paul and Barnabas realize what has happened, they believe, they are believed to be gods, there's going to be the sacrifice, they stop the crowd and say, we're men just like you all. They barely get them to stop, and then some Jewish men show up, and just like that, they convince the crowd that not only are these not gods, but these are essentially infidels. Paul is beaten close to death and dragged outside the city gates. We can be rejected in absolutely a moment's notice. But you know, it can also go the other way. Sometimes we can be viewed as rejected, but all of a sudden we are put on a pedestal that we do not deserve. So, in Acts chapter 28, Paul and some other men, about 270 on a ship, have been in a storm at sea for two full weeks. There's been very little eating that has gone on because the weather has been so bad. The ship is actually stuck on a sandbar. It is destroyed. Everybody safely gets to land. It's cold and it's rainy. It's the island of Malta. And as they are on the land, the villagers come out, and they do the most remarkable thing. They create this big fire, bonfire, to warm them up. And Paul and the others are bringing wood to put on the fire. And Paul takes some wood to the fire, and then a viper snaps on, a poisonous viper snaps on and bites him on the hand. And the people from Malta see that, and they say, he must be a murderer. He escaped the sea but judgment has come for him. And Paul shakes the snake off into the fire, and the people keep watching him to swell up and to be poisoned and to die, and he doesn't. And then they shift from thinking he is a murderer to he's a god. Sometimes other people have a completely wrong opinion of us. We need to remember that in those times that we feel uncomfortable because we're rejected or because we're accepted too much, what matters is not someone else's opinion of us. What matters is that we are children of God. So what's the answer to discomfort, being uncomfortable in the world that we are in because maybe somebody says something harsh or critical or because we just feel out of place or maybe because we're just completely rejected? I think the answer is that God gives us community. Find a place where others seek God. Find a place where they will strengthen you and encourage you and pray for you and support you in good times and in bad. I told a story this morning in Bible class about a young lady that came from California to Oklahoma Christian. She'd never been out of the state before. A series of kind of unusual things brought her to Oklahoma Christian But she believes that God has brought her there to find her people. She's amazed that so many people know her now. She's amazed that she is prayed for before class and before tests. She is actually now sending photos of houses back to her mom in California saying, look, I just want you to know I'm not coming back to California, so you might as well buy one of these houses and come here if you want to be close. But my prayer for all of us is that we live in a world that at times is going to be very uncomfortable, but God gives us each other and God gives us his spirit to keep encouraged and to keep strengthened. 
Sometimes we need people to strengthen us, but we have to realize that sometimes God has put us here to strengthen others. It's been a real honor to be with you this morning. I love this family of God. I'm really proud of what you all do and how important you are in this community. Again, guests, I'm not stolen a meal from you. Join us with Oklahoma Christian at lunch afterwards. I know also, though, that at the end of each of the lessons that Toby and others provide, that there's a chance that if you have a need, if you need prayers, need to be baptized, you need encouragement, that elders will be in the back of the auditorium to meet you, and I would encourage you to avail yourself of that resource. If there's any reason for you um, that we can help you, please meet the elders back there as we stand and as we sing.